All right, today we're continuing our series right now, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, what it looks like to be the church. And so uh, the Apostle Peter is going to talk to us about what is, it, what is it like to be a Christian in the first century? I think one of the things that's really different about listening, sometimes when we read the Bible today, we read it from the perspective of what's going on today, but sometimes we have to read the Bible from the perspective of what's going on then. Remember, Christianity is this small Jewish sect. Everybody's Jewish at this point when Peter's writing this. Almost everybody's Jewish. It's still within Judaism, this really tiny little sect of people. And they have gathered together in such a way that every time you run into someone who is a Christian, every time you come across someone who's a believer, you all of a sudden realize, wow, this is unique among the Roman Empire. This is somebody that's different, just like me. And as a result, there was a connection, a brotherness, a sisterness to that. And that kind of connection that was present in the first century is not necessarily present today in the church. We identify ourselves in so many different ways, right? There are different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes. In Rome, there was much more fixed kind of system. And as a result, we don't always see ourselves first and foremost as followers of Jesus, first and foremost as Christians. But I wanna challenge you that that is absolutely the way that we are supposed to think about ourselves. And as a result, the way we treat one another has a massive impact on how other people see God. Let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we're gonna be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses eight through 12 today. I'm gonna read the passage, then I'm gonna walk back through each one of the verses. It starts like this. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, well, let's, let's dive into this. Let's go back, if you will, to uh, verse eight. Let's take a look at this. It starts off, Peter starts this section off with five separate commands. And what you need to know about this in the original language is that's exactly what these are. These are commands. These are command, an imperative structure, just like you would find in the 10 commandments. Thou shall not lie, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery or covet thy neighbor's wife, right? At the end of the day, these are commands. But look at this, B, B, and B, these words right here. These are ontological statements. What does that mean? It means these are statements of being. These are statements of identity. So when he's writing this, he's saying, I want you as a person who identifies as a Christian, to be like-minded. In other words, all of these five commandments are things he says should be in the life of every single one of us if we're Christians. Now, listen, if you're in the room right now or you're online right now and you're not a Christian, we're not talking directly. You don't have to do any of these kind of things. These are not things that are necessary for you. But what I've discovered that whether you're religious or irreligious, the scriptures, even the wisdom found in them can be helpful for your life. And I'll, I'll, we're gonna explain that in a second. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, have compassion and be humble. So what does it look like to be like-minded? Like-minded means that we are moving in the same direction, that together we are moving in the same direction. Prior to starting this church almost 20 years ago, I prayed and I asked God, God, give us a church where we would be unified, where we'd be moving in the same direction. It wouldn't be filled with division. I've seen churches fall apart because of division, backbiting, problems, all kinds of just drama and dysfunction. And I asked God before we started it, I said, God, I don't want to pastor a church like that. And for 20 years, 
God has been faithful, that we haven't had that weird drama in the church. I've been super, super grateful for that. But that's not something that just happens as a result of happenstance. It is a discipline that we all have had in order to become a certain type of people. And so I love that I get to talk about this message to a church that for 20 years has embodied many of these same principles. But just like anything, we can all take our next step in this way. So what does it mean to be like-minded? It means that we're moving in the same direction. It means that we have a mission together. Now, what it doesn't mean is that you all agree with each other. So why does he put this in command form? I think it's because it's so important. I think that what he's talking about in this passage today is absolutely essential for us if we're gonna win the day as followers of Jesus. In order, in order for us to be able to influence the culture around us, they have to be attracted to what's happening in our lives. In fact, I want you to look at this principle up on the screen. How people see God's people is how people see God. How people see God's people is how people see God. In other words, they're watching your life. So I would ask you a question at the beginning. When people are watching your life, what does your life say about God? What does your life say about God? Is your life a life that's just filled with anger and it's filled with bitterness? And therefore, when people see you, they see God that way? Or is your life filled with the things that we just looked at, these five commands? Being on the same page as others, being compassionate, being a person that's loving. What does it look like? What does your God look like to other people? Well, I think for us to, to kind of look at this, we look at it through the lens of marriage. Being like-minded doesn't mean you agree on everything. It just doesn't. I mean, if you've been married for 10 minutes, you know that to be true, right? I mean, it's just, you're not going to agree on absolutely everything. But what you can do is contend and work for your marriage, right? The reality is, I think for many of us, we don't believe that good marriages struggle, that good marriages argue, that good marriages have to fight everything through. So I wanna to talk to you right now about like being like-minded, but I think it's not enough just to say, be like-minded, be on the same page. Why can't we just all get along? It doesn't work that way. There's a skill behind it that I think is absolutely essential that I'm gonna say has been largely forgotten in our world today. About, uh, gosh, I think in the late 1970s, there was a book that was written. When I became a Christian in the 80s, I read this book for the first time. It's my first psychology book long before I became a counselor or anything like that. And this book was written by a psychiatrist. His name was M. Scott Peck. And it was a book called The Road Less Traveled. It's probably, probably sold maybe 8 million copies across the world. It's a fantastic book. But underlying the principles of this book was one overarching theme. And it was the idea of delayed gratification. If we're gonna be healthy in our marriages, if we're gonna be healthy in the church, because those scriptures are always back and forth that marriage is like the church, marriage is like the church, the church is like marriage, our relationship with God is like a marriage. So if we're gonna be healthy in our marriages, if we're gonna be healthy in our relationships, if we're gonna be healthy in the church, it requires us to have a skill behind that. And that skill is delayed gratification. So this is what M. Scott Peck wrote back in the late 1970s. He wrote these words, delaying gratification is a process of scheduling the pain and pleasure of life in such a way as to enhance the pleasure by meeting and experiencing the pain first and getting it over with. It is the only decent way to live. Now listen to this. This is a powerful idea. It actually still impacts every area of my life. Like I literally eat chocolate cake in a certain way because of this, right? Like I eat the middle out of the chocolate cake before anything. Why? Because I want to deal with the worst part of it first. 
And then I want to eat the frosting later because that accentuates the pleasure in it, right? But for many of us, like in our relationships and especially in our marriages, when it comes to dealing with the hard things first and then delaying the gratification for the easy things later, that's not what we do. In fact, for many of us, our modus operandi, the way that we operate is basically to say, I'm not going to deal with this issue right now. I'm going to let it go. I'm just going to push it off. I'm not going to confront this issue. Why? Because confronting the issue is hard. It's painful and it's discomforting. And what Peck writes about is basically there is a kind of maturity in the soul that needs to happen in order for us to be able to deal with uncomfortable things and not just push them off. You are not a person who's just wired to push things off. In fact, this is what the Bible says about that principle. It says that, it says that uh, our goal should be not to let the sun set on our anger. Why is that? Such great wisdom from the scriptures. Here's why. Here's why. Because as we are going along life with our family and with our relationships, with our friends, with our marriage, whatever it is, and in those relationships, you're going to have little hurts, little wounds. And you can do one of two strategies. In the moment, you can address them and then get them behind you. It's uncomfortable. Or you can allow them just to build up over time. And have you ever been in an argument with somebody? And, and, and you're, just, you're not even arguing about anything real. It's like, where are we going to go to dinner? And then one of you, like usually your husband, just flips out for no reason. And you're just like, I was just saying Burger King. Like, 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 you're just like, it's no big deal. That's not what's happened. What's happened is he stuffed it and he stuffed it and he stuffed it and he stuffed it thinking that's a strategy that actually works and it doesn't. It doesn't because what happens is these small things become really big things. And then one tiny little thing and you're like, why do you hate me so much? You know, it's not that at all. It's just that you didn't address it. You let the sun go down on your anger. Anger's not bad in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say anger is wrong. It just says don't sin in your anger, right? So feel it, experience it, but deal with it head on. It's the same thing in business. If you don't deal with the, the things that are messing up your business right now and you just put them off in the future, they're gonna be magnified and they're gonna be enhanced. Delayed gratification is necessary for us to be able to be people who can be like-minded. Why? Because someone here at church is gonna say something to you that you don't like. And you're gonna just say, I don't like that person. I don't like this church anymore. And I'm gonna go on. You can't live life like that. That's not a decent way to live life. Why is it not decent? Well, my parents um, were great, unfortunate examples of indecency in my life. Both of them were married three times to different people. And what happens, because statistics show us this, that when you divorce for one time, listen, before I talk about divorce, if you're divorced, there is forgiveness if you blew it. And some of you weren't even on the side of blowing it. You were on the side of receiving someone else who was blowing it. It was all messed up. There is restoration, there is healing, and there is a future. So that's fact. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches us in every area of our life, including divorce. But let's just say you go through a divorce, right? And then here's what happens. The second divorce has a 50% higher divorce rate. The third marriage has a 75% higher rate of divorce. Why? Here's why. Because the first marriage that you're in, you don't know any better. You're just kind of figuring it out. You have these accumulated pains that happen, then you just blow up and then you bail. But you know what happens immediately after you bail? You think to yourself, well, this is so much better. This is so much better. Why? Because I'm not dealing with her anymore. I'm not dealing with him anymore. This is why in like 20 something years of counseling, I never actually ever, unless it's violence, ask a married couple to, for a time of separation. 
Because you know what happens? As soon as you separate from one another, you go, well, I feel better. Obviously, the problem was her. And it's not. You know why? Because I've seen her and I've seen him marry the same person in a different body over and over and over again. Why? Because we never learned along the way to deal with our problems right here and right now because right here and right now matters. And if we don't delay gratification in our own personal lives and discipline ourselves in that way in our church or in our businesses, our businesses are going to go south, our churches are going to go south, and our relationships will go south. So when Peter says, I want you to be like-minded, he's not saying, I want you to think the same thoughts. He's saying, fight it out. Contend for the relationship. It matters. I know. I know sometimes it's impossible and it doesn't work, but so often it can when it doesn't. Finally, all of you be like-minded. And then he says here, be sympathetic. Sympathetic means that we don't act like robots, that whatever relationship that you're in, whatever circles of influence that you're in, you actually are emotionally connected to those. That's what sympathy is, being emotionally connected to others around you. Now, there's also a kind of a danger in this, and it has to do with the idea of being connected as a world in the way we are right now. You know things about the world that no one in history knew at your age at this time in history because of how connected we are. The result of that is we see a lot more trauma, we see a lot more hardship, and we see a lot more difficulties coming our way all the time. Here's what's important. I want you to realize you are responsible for your circles of influence and not the entire world. You have to be emotionally connected to those people who are in your life. The Bible says it this way, bear one another's burdens. When you hurt, I hurt. When I hurt, you hurt. When we hurt, we hurt with each other. And we care about each other. And so he says then also love one another. This is a command, like love one another. This is what we're supposed to do. And you need to know, and you do because you have families. That it's easy sometimes to, to, it's not easy to love people, but love and like are two different things. There are plenty of people in your family that you're like, I love them, but I don't like them a whole lot. And the requirement here is not that you have to like every person. It's that you treat them with love. Love is an action. It's what you do towards someone or for someone. And then it says here, compassion. Compassion and sympathy are very similar to one another, except sympathy is the emotional engagement. Compassion is the action that flows from sympathy. Be a person who chooses to act on behalf of someone else. And then the last one is, the command is, we as Christians are to be humble. It's what we are. We're ontologically humble. And so what that means is basically, we've talked about this before. Humility is power restrained. The Bible says this about you. He says, I did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Don't walk in fear. You have power, you have love, and you have self-discipline from the Lord. And so because of that, we take that power, and we use it for the sake of others. Consider, as Paul said, consider others better than yourself, right? There's a difference between being people who are here I am people and there you are people. Isn't it great to be around people who are there you are people? It's amazing to be around a person like that. There's humility. It's not about me. It's about you. First Peter 3, 8, 9, again, says this, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And here's where it really gets tough, right? Verse nine, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Verse nine, 
Look at these, these, these words right here. Do not repay evil with evil, repay evil with blessing. There's an increase in this. I'll talk about that in a second. Do not repay evil with evil. Look, we live in a world right now where even our heroes, whether they're politicians or they're actors or they're sports people or whatever, we live in a world basically right now that is all about making sure that if you don't have your rights, if someone infringes on you, you hit them hard. That's not the way of Jesus. Can I just say that again? It's not the way of Jesus. And I'm going to show you even more of that in a second. Because I know right now, this is probably a bigger issue for some of the men in the room. And you might be like, well, this is just, take, this is just making us soft. It doesn't make us soft. American ways of thinking about manhood and, and strength are all about pushback and personal strength. Throughout history, men were considered strong, virulent, and powerful because they had self-control. Because they had the capacity to dominate themselves to say, you know what? I'm in control of how I respond to every situation. That is strength. And so when it comes to the natural impulse, and I think there is a natural impulse in us to say, I, when you do something wrong to me, I'm going to do something wrong to you. When I, uh, when I was growing up, my, my father was really abusive and violent and just an overall not great guy. So some of the counsel that he gave me when I was growing up was not so wonderful. One of the things that he would say to me when I was a little boy, I remember very young getting this counsel. He'd say, Michael, you need to realize the world is really difficult and people are out to get you and you need to make sure that you don't get got. It's better to get than it is to get got. And I just remember thinking as a little kid, I'm like, that's smart. That way you protect yourself. You're safe. You're, everything's okay. But at the end of the day, what I realized when I became a Christian and I became a man, these things started punching me in the face. And I started realizing, well, hold on. When I first came across, do not repay evil with evil, I thought to myself, well, that's not right. How do you destroy evil if you don't punch it back? Do not repay evil with evil. Well, how do you destroy evil? How do you figure that out? How do you push back in that situation? Now, can we just say that there are, there are boundaries of this? Because I know some of you in your heads right now are pushing back going, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? Sure. Let's say somebody breaks into your house. What's the moral quandary of that? Do I have to just say, well, welcome on in. Do, do terrible things to my wife and children. No, that's not what we do. We can protect because the strong protect the weak. This is what we do, right? So you can push back on this kind of evil, but what Peter's writing about right now is everyday, ordinary kinds of circumstances, the kind of evils that you experience on a regular basis. Like somebody is unjust to you. Somebody takes advantage of you. In business, somebody does something and doesn't follow through with it. Or somebody begins to murder your reputation behind the scenes, whatever it is. He says, don't repay evil with evil. But here's what I learned. I actually learned that as I started to think differently about this, when I came across these passages, I started treating people as if I wanted them to be. It's almost like I was thinking, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? So I started treating people like I wanted them to be, like I, like I hoped they would be. And you know what's fascinating about that? As I expected upward, not downward for people, they lived upward. More and more people were like that than disappointed. Now, there's always disappointing. There's always disappointment, but you can live life walking around going, everyone's terrible and I'm on guard, or you can expect the best out of somebody and watch the best show up. I think it's a much better way to live. Why? Partly because as people are watching you, they're watching your God. You need to know that everything you know about physics, almost everything you know about physics and everything you know about quantum mechanics, everything you know about you know, astronomy, the stars and the universe, that's stuff you probably saw on some television show. That's some stuff that you probably, you probably uh, heard about someone else tell a story about, but very few of, I took two physics classes in college and I was done. 
but most of us don't pick up physics books and look inside of them and go, what's really the truth here? In In the same way, in the same way, people outside of the church are not picking up the Bible going, let me figure out who Jesus is. They're just hearing from you. They're just watching you going, huh, I guess, I guess Jesus is super political and pissed off. Here's a principle. How people see God's people is how people see God. How people see God's people is how people see God. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, to this you were called, why? Because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. What's a beautiful picture of this. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. So we have this picture of Christ's suffering and that in his suffering, he leaves us an example. What is that example? The example is how he suffered, like what he did. We're gonna look at that in just a second. How Jesus suffered is the way in which you and I are to go through hard things because going through hard things in life is non-negotiable. Whether you believe in God or you don't in the room right now, that's a non-negotiable. That's the human condition, not a religious question. Every one of us will go through suffering of some sort in our life. But the question is, how will you deal with the suffering that you go through? Christ suffered, right? Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The first thing I want you to see is that sometimes suffering comes to you. Here's Jesus, sinless, still suffering. Sometimes what you need to realize is suffering that happens in your life, even at the hands of other people saying bad things about you, dealing with you dishonestly, is not because of you. It's not because of you. It's because you live in a broken world. It's because you live in a world that God created that was perfect and beautiful and that men and women throughout the ages have twisted and distorted and messed up. And now sometimes the suffering that we have is just the result of a bad context but it doesn't necessarily speak that you're in the wrong. In fact, let's look at the next verse, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to the father who judges justly. So this is a a great picture. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. And remember who Jesus is. Jesus has the power of God. And in any moment, if Jesus was overwhelmingly angry, and undisciplined, he could have just, and the entire universe goes away. He could have totally blotted out all of his suffering, but he chose not to do that. Why? Well, remember, this is an example for us. When he suffered, he made no threats. I'm not going to punch you back when you punch. Instead, here's what our job is. Here's the example. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father. He entrusted himself to the Father. So there's a piece of the hardship that we go through in life that we're going to lose in the moment. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Sometimes you lose in the moment, but time and truth run hand in hand. Eventually over time, the truth of who you are will win out because character matters. But at the end of the day here, he entrusted himself to the father who judges justly. The word justly means rightly. So in other words, ultimately, ultimately the father will do the right thing for you. So sometimes, you know, what's important is that we are able to respond to people well. And what I mean by that is sometimes I've told my kids this growing up, you have two things in your hands at all times in all conflicts. You have gas and water, and you can throw one or two on top of a fire. 
right? When things are hard, when you're going through insults, when things are retaliating, what do you do in those situations? What do you do in those circumstances? Well, you respond differently. The book of Proverbs says this, a kind word turns away wrath. A kind word turns away wrath. When somebody's doing something terrible to you, don't respond with wickedness the same way. A kind word turns away wrath. It makes it less. Pour the water on the fire, not the gasoline. In fact, uh, (laughs) when we first moved to this building, we messed up bad. Uh, We moved in this building, and the first thing that we thought would be a wise thing for us to do is have a, a large outdoor concert. And it was so loud, and the neighbors came out with pitchforks. I mean, they were so angry. What we didn't know is that the Shriners who had this building before we did were always so loud doing parties and the neighborhood was so angry. And then when we bought the church, they were like, oh good, a little quiet church is coming to the neighborhood. It's going to be great. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) And so we do this giant outdoor big thing. It's this big concert. Some neighbors came over and they were super angry, very, making accusations, saying all kinds of things. There were like 10 of them. They elected this one lady to come forward. And she came forward and she said, she said, what is wrong with you? I'm like, lots of things. You know, I'm just like, oh, it's all kinds of things. I don't know. Where did we start? And she's like, what is wrong with you? Do you know how loud you are? We can't sleep. I'm like, it's eight. You know, I'm like, I didn't say that because that would be gasoline, right? That would be gasoline. That's pouring gasoline. Up. So, so, so she's like, I'm so mad right now. This is so disrespectful. And I just listened to her and I just listened to her. And at the end, I said, you're completely right. Kind word. Take all of this stuff that was way up here and just brought it way down here in an instant. And the funny thing about it was, she said, what's your name? She goes, what's your name, young man? I was like, I was like, this is awesome. What's your name, young man? And I said, Mike Adkins. And she goes, what's your last name? I said, Adkins. And she goes, she goes, what's your mom's name? And I go, Mary. She goes, she's my next door neighbor. <laughs> and my mom had moved to Ohio, you know, in the meantime. And uh, <laughs> that night I got a call from my mom. She gets on the phone. She goes, what is wrong with you? The whole neighborhood is calling me right now. I'm mad about this. It was amazing. You, you, can, you can deal with people with water or gasoline. But if you walk around with gasoline all the time, you need to know that you are creating the problem. You're like, no, they're coming at me. You know, a kind word, a soft-spoken word, some humility in the middle of that, and you have a completely different response. With everyone, with most people. Every once in a while, there is the irrational fool. And in those situations, just go, the Lord be with you, because I'm not going to be with you anymore. You know, (laughs) and you 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 just get out of the situation, right? Thanks, man. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. What did he do? He suffered. He didn't make any threats. Instead, he trusted himself to the father who judges justly. He said, Father, I'm going to trust that you take care of my life. After three days of being in that tomb, the father raised Jesus from the dead. And the Bible says that he was given the name that is above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father that Jesus is Lord. This is what the Father does when you trust. You will not be ashamed if you trust your Father. You will not be brokenhearted if you trust your Father in the end. He always does the right thing. He always does justice. You don't have to worry about it. 
So Father, I'm losing right now. People are saying bad things about me right now. Things aren't going well right now on the outside, but I trust you with my reputation. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my children. I trust you with my wife. I trust you with my husband. I trust you with my hope. I trust you with my goals. I trust you with my future, God. That's what God is doing. He's asking us to trust him with all things. And when we do that, we don't have to learn the lessons over and over and over again. Look at what it says here in 1 Peter 3.10. He continues, for whoever would love life and see good days. I want to love life. I I do love my life. I I have an awesome life. I love that I get to do this with you guys. Whoever would love life and see good days. The first thing I want you to see is that there is this weird philosophical asceticism, right? Inside the church. Asceticism basically is the belief that suffering is godliness. That's a heresy and it's not biblical. Not that you won't suffer or not that God doesn't sometimes want you to go through hard things because he's forming you and he's shaping you into a better person. But the goal of the Christian life is not suffering. The goal of the Christian life is not if I suffer more, God loves me more. That's not it. In fact, here's what I want you to see. He says, you can love your life and you can see good days in this world. But whoever would, whoever would, love life and see good days. And then he gives us requirements, a series of requirements. He says, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Do you know why? One of the biggest ways in which people lie today is not that you're just, you know, going to lie about your resume, although there's that. But it's lying about the picture of your life, who you are. It's the picture of Instagram basically says, hey man, every one of my meals is cooked by a five-star chef. We're always vacationing. We never work, but yet have plenty of money. And everything seems to be going perfect in our life. It's a kind of lie. And, And here's why it's insidious and here's why it hurts you. Because you eventually feel like you always have to keep up that lie. So when something goes wrong, you gotta hide now. I gotta hide I can't tell you over the years how discouraging it's been to watch people who suffer and go through hard things just disappear from the church. And only later to find out, they said, I was embarrassed that things were going wrong in my life. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's part of what the church is for. We are for one another. So when you fall down because we have compassion, we help you up. You cannot stand on your own by yourself. Always. But here, we have people, you have family, we are Christians, and that means something. It's not a political label, God forbid. It's a spiritual heritage. It's a legacy for the future. It's what we are. It ends like this. If you wanna see whoever would love life and see good days, Verse 11, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Do you see how now we're changing in the world in this? We're becoming something different. We now pursue good instead of evil. We pursue peace instead of strife and drama. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What an amazing thing. Not the perfect, not the perfectly holy, but those whose hearts are inclined to the Lord who fail and fall down and make mistakes and even outright sin, 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. It means he's near you. But a person committed to the path of wickedness, a person committed to the path of ungodliness, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's a great story that illustrates this. And I'm going to tell this whole story. We're going to go through the entire book one day. It's the book of Hosea. And Hosea is a man who is a prophet of the Lord, but he marries an adulterous woman. And the amazing thing about this is that she is constantly experiencing the consequences of her adultery. She runs after her lovers. They get what they want. They scorn her. She falls to pieces. And like a fool, Hosea comes running for her because he's a godly fool. And he picks her up and he takes her home. Why? Because he's her wife. She is his wife. Takes her home, restores her in the marriage, and she leaves again. And it is this picture of leaving, leaving, and God running after her over and over again. God uses this story in the prophet's life to talk to Israel, to talk to the community of faith, to say, God speaking through the life of Hosea, I am Hosea. And you have walked away over and over and over again. You have committed adultery against me over and over again. You've run to foreign things. You've run to, you've run to money. You've run to sexuality. You've run to power. You've run to politics. You've run to all these things that you believed would give you security. And you know what? Every time you experience the consequences of it, it never ever does give you hope. But every time you fall down, here's my promise because you are my bride, I will bring you home with me again. And it's the picture of restoration. That is the story of God. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how many times you fail, the father is with you and he will pick you up and he will take you home. Jesus, thank you for being the instrument that God used to bring our healing Thank you for being the instrument that changes everything for us. You open salvation to us. You open a life that would see good days, but not just here in this world, a life that would see good days forever and ever and ever. Lord, thank you for the instruction that we receive today, that there are things, Lord, that we can do to have less drama in our life, that there are ways that you've called us to walk. Thank you for the reminder, God, that as people watch our lives, they see our God. Help us to meditate a God on the idea of what kind of God they see. But thank you in the end, God, no matter how well we're doing this thing or how poorly we're doing it, you are a husband who never fails to find us. We are so grateful for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.